morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. I want to uh, start at the very beginning by, and I don't mean this tongue-in-cheek. I'm a man of words. I love language. And I have to give Pastor Kevin kudos for working in, quite naturally, the word bifurcated into whatever you were just saying or praying. That just flowed right off your lips. That didn't even have to get worked in. I mean, you didn't have to plan that. He just used the word bifurcated. You can go look it up later. It's awesome. Nobody else may have noticed, but I noticed. (laughs) Uh, So uh, uh, how many of you all were here on Friday? handful of you. We had a great time um, uh, just casting vision for this gathering November 1 to 10 in North Battleford. I really encourage um, uh, uh, folks from Belleville, but in particular this congregation, to really just catch the spirit of what God is doing in the land and be standard bearers in this day, in this hour. I thought that I might carry over some of that um, to today, but I just feel like after having spent more time with um, the miracles, love the family, bless you guys, Barry has just uh, uh, fed me so much food and... um, uh, I've gotten to come up here and eat steak and and uh, and watch gladiators fight in the ring last night. Triple G lost, but uh, uh, it's 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 really been just good for my soul to be with you guys and and to uh, get to know Pastor Kevin, his lovely wife. And anyway, all that to say, I'm really glad to be here. I feel very welcomed here. In fact, I'm unusually excited because. I feel like there is, uh, uh, I feel like there is a, a preparation in this place that I don't often uh, enjoy when I go someplace, and you kind of have to measure the revelation you give according to uh, uh, the readiness of people to receive it. Quite honestly, uh, if you if you dramatically overshoot where people are, it's it, it, it's lost. Uh, but I feel like there's some stuff that's deep in my heart that I can give, and I believe this house is ready, and that excites me. Um, so I, I really just commend the leadership and, and the things that you guys are pursuing in the Lord and the things you've been uh, brought up in and, and trained in and uh, uh, pursued in God. I want to talk about dueling covenants today. You can turn to Romans 4.11. I have uh, a passage in Romans, a passage in Galatians, and a passage in Hebrews. And just strap in a little bit if you don't mind. Uh, I've got more than I can probably deliver. And really this should be unpacked over about 10 messages. (laughs) So we're going to squeeze that in, right? So uh, uh, Pastor Kevin told me, not to take more than three hours, and so, what? Is there not an amen there? Come on. <laughs> Romans 4.11, God, uh, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm, I'm asking for that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you to be abundant and real and present. God, that these words could be tested These words could be found true, and whatever is not true, let it fall to the ground and die. But whatever it is 
true, that it would, your spirit would bear witness and cause the prospering of the kingdom in this place to, uh, to, to move forward according to your will and purpose. In Jesus' name. Um, I, I would, under normal circumstances, do a little bit more of an introduction and, you know, hey, let's get to know each other kind of deal. But I got to move on. So here we go. Romans 4.11, speaking of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Everyone say righteousness that he had by faith. All right, bear that in mind. A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is a, a loaded passage, beautiful uh, uh, passage in Romans. Romans uh, is the book that Luther got a hold of 500 years ago, scales fell off his eyes, 1,500 years of, of uh, dead uh, uh, tradition broke off in an instant, and the, the marvelous light and liberty of salvation by grace through faith once again arrested the people of God. You're, you're, you're living and you're walking in that, and yet these things are progressive, uh, what Luther started 500 years ago has been added to and added to and added to because God is committed to the restoration of all things. So things that are lost, he hasn't lost, we've lost it, he's going to restore it. And there is an ultimate design to that. It's not the restoration of a few things. It's the restoration of all things. And, and so even what I'm sharing here today might be part of that restoration and yet it's incomplete. Because there's more, there's more, there's more. I, I think that uh, uh, he may have been, uh, Pastor Kevin may have given me the best introduction I've ever had. There is a holy dissatisfaction on my life. Because I always want more. And I want you to want more. And I want you to understand and walk in the fullness of what God gives. So, uh, verse 12, to make him the father of the uh, circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. But uh, just bounce over real quick to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Hebrews 8, 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, speaking of the old covenant, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says. Now your Bible may say that, for he finds fault with them. But the language is actually, uh, and some translations render it differently. We just, we, we just saw in verse 7 
that he's saying the first covenant was not faultless. And so then when it says, for he finds fault with them, the language actually, and, and some translations will render it, for finding fault with it, referring to the covenant. Because the first covenant was not faultless. It was perfect. It was perfect as a description as the total righteousness of God. But God still found a fault with that covenant. And I'll get into that. Finding fault with it, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. I believe that, length, that, that it is more accurate because of the context. If the first covenant was sufficient, he wouldn't need another covenant. So out of the first covenant, he was declaring the insufficiency simply by also proclaiming the need and the promise of the covenant to come. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Then he goes on to quote out of, out of uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel the kind of covenant that's coming where the Spirit of God, the laws are in our hearts and written on our, are in our minds and written on our hearts and he will be merciful toward our iniquities and remember our sin no more. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, so this is some of the most dangerous language in Scripture and we do not, we do not take it at face value. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Uh, there are uh, passages of Scripture that are, are worth digging into, like, you know, just in the details. You get into every word and every syllable and you trace the roots and this, that, and the other. And sometimes it's very profitable to dig in deeply into a particular passage. Today is one of these where I'm going to give two or three passages, but what I really want to do is step away from any single one uh, uh, detail and try to capture the big picture. I'm a, I'm a painter also. I love Impressionism. If you aren't familiar with Impressionism, that's the one where there's all these little kind of squiggly lines and it can look kind of fuzzy, and especially if you're up close, all you see is the, the lines. But when you step back, it all forms a cohesive whole. And it's a beautiful, Claude Monet is a great example. You see the whole picture when you get some distance from it. You know, we, we can sometimes read scripture in such a way that we lose the forest for the trees. I want to step away and see the forest today, all right? So the idea of dueling covenants is to look at what was the old covenant, what is the new covenant? And we have here this language of, of the, the fault of an old covenant that we have properly been taught is perfect, so how can it be faulty? We have... This language of an old covenant being obsolete, that's a strong word. In fact, a picture of, 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 of the foolishness of, of, of trying to use something obsolete, you know, when, uh, when NASA set a man on the moon, they had rooms, multiple rooms this size that were just filled with 
massive old mainframe computers and you see all the blinking lights and the banks of, of technology that they're using, right? And, 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 and that was the pinnacle of technology in its heyday. You guys know what this is, right? Everyone carries one of these in, its, in your pocket, in your purse. You have more technology in your smartphone than NASA landed a man on the moon with. The sum total of the computing processing power that NASA used, you now carry in your pocket every day. So imagine if, you know, uh, we're trying to go to Mars next. You all remember the old Atari game system? Right? The one little joystick and a red button. Imagine if we were going to go to NASA and, and, and uh, uh, watch as they put together the technology necessary to land a man on the moon, and we get in there, and there's about 10 engineers, and they all have Atari joysticks, right? And they're like, okay, I think we can do it. Okay, bank to the left a little bit. Okay, hit the red button now. We'd be like, oh, my gosh, why are you doing this? There's so much better technology. You would say, why are you using inferior and obsolete technology? To achieve this goal. Paul in the discussion and the language of righteousness. And what it really means to be alive in the purpose of God. Says you need to think about the old covenant as if it were that Atari joystick. Well amen all by myself. So here's the challenge. Righteousness can be a fuzzy concept. We, we get it in a moment of revelation. And we all know, we all know this kind of theoretical framework. The Old Covenant had uh, the, the law that was given and the uh, sacrifices and the rituals and the traditions and the tabernacle to the temple and all of those were types and shadows leading to, up to, Christ, we would echo Paul that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. We kind of know the language. We know that we come to Jesus in a radical act of mercy and forgiveness and grace and we're, we're changed, we're transformed and our eternal residence you know, moves from downstairs to upstairs. And that's awesome. But the gospel of salvation is barely the beginning. And even in the gospel of salvation, we so quickly revert to law thinking in how we live, supposedly, in the gospel of grace. We so quickly revert into an obsolete form of righteousness. We come to God in forgiveness and mercy and grace. And then we kind of take it from there and we say, okay, God, I'm going to work to prove to you that I really deserve this gift. And this happens in very subtle ways. So we get, we get righteousness. Even today, I believe some of you are going to get revelation of righteousness. But that ground has to be guarded in your spirit until your, your mind is truly renewed and you begin to think with a different paradigm. 
So I want to give a simple and uh, a legal and relational framework to help. Righteousness, we know, is right standing. Have you ever heard that taught? Righteousness is right standing. So that's a summary. A, a, a more complete statement would be it is the qualitative and relational status determined by fidelity to the terms of God's covenant. Okay? So righteousness, to be in right standing means you have a qualitative and relational status with God that is determined by the fidelity you show to God's covenant. Let me simplify that. Righteousness is obedience to the terms of the covenant. Okay? Can everyone wrap your head around that? Righteousness, not at me, wave something. Righteousness is obedience to the terms of the covenant. Now here's the challenge with that. You have to know what covenant you're under. You have to know what covenant you're under if you want to have the righteousness that comes from the obedience to a certain covenant. And there is more than one covenant operating. That's why I, 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 I call this dueling covenants. There are two covenant structures in Scripture. And this is where I want to pull away and kind of give the 30,000 foot view, the, the 6,000 year history in a few minutes. There's two covenant structures. In general, there is the co covenants of performance and there are the covenants of promise. Another way we say that is the covenants of law and the covenant of grace. The covenant of performance is the covenant of law. The covenant of promise is the covenant of grace. And so you see multiple covenants that kind of happen. You have a covenant with Noah. You have a covenant with David. You have the eternal covenant in Christ. And we have to understand what that is based on. And to get an understanding of what the covenant with Christ is that we all live under, but do we prosper under? Do we have the paradigm that gives us full access by obeying the terms of that covenant? If I have a, 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 a rich uncle who put a million, kajillion dollars in my bank account... And I don't know my PIN number, right? I've got the debit card, but I don't know the PIN number, and I don't really believe he did that. I just got that letter in the mail, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is too good to be true. I actually have it, and it does me no good. So we see the first covenant of performance in the garden. The first covenant of performance in the garden. I'm going to focus on Abram, Abraham and Moses right, uh, right now. But I want to illustrate the difference by pointing first to the covenant of performance in the garden. And I want you to consider this. The covenant of performance in the garden was the simplest Performance-based system possible. 
There was one rule. That's it. There was one rule. There were only two people to screw this up. And it was in a perfect set of conditions, an ideal set of conditions, without sin. So without sin, paradise, only two people and only one rule. That is as good and as clean. You cannot reduce a performance-based system to any leaner, meaner, better-suited possibility to work. And we know the outcome. A covenant of performance in the best condition with only two free wills involved and no in, innate inclination to sin yet. And that one requirement that creates a performance relationship is we have to get the clue here. It is destined to fail. Fast forward to Abraham. Abraham enters into a different kind of relationship with God. That simple covenant of performance is in the earth at that point. We're all born now into sin by Adam, we're, we're uh, uh, living in a fallen world. Abram comes along. God says, hey, uh, come out of Ur of the Chaldees and follow me. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you so much that I'll bless those who bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless you so much, I'll curse those that curse you. And yet, for Abram, who became Abraham... There is no curse for Abraham in the promise to Abraham. You can look in Genesis 12. You can look in Genesis 15. You can look in Genesis 17. As God announces the covenant that he has with Abraham. And he clarifies it and he expands it. The covenant with Abraham is a unilateral promise from God. Genesis 15 when God cuts covenant and the animals are divided. And there's the path of blood. Abraham is asleep. He doesn't actually get a say in this. It, it's a picture of the rest that we can possess in Christ. He is put to sleep and God says, I'm so committed to my promise to you, I alone am cutting covenant with you. You are the recipient. You go to sleep and you trust and receive and I'm going to get it done. It's all up to me. It's not up to anything you can do. There is no performance in Abraham's covenant. He's asleep and the price of blood is entirely on God. And the fidelity to the covenant is entirely God's commitment. And there's no curse. In fact, these are some challenging things, okay? These are some challenging things because they, they get at the heart of the secret law thinking we all possess. But I want to just go over quickly... What happens in Abram's life? He goes just in that same chapter, chapter 12, where the covenant happens just a few verses later. Abram is uh, uh, heading down to Egypt and he's got his wife Sarai. She's 65 years old and apparently she's a knockout. 
Come on, ladies. Beauty. Glory. Goes down to Egypt. And Abram is afraid. And he says, honey, what a, what a coward. He says, honey, I need you to act like you're my sister. Because if they see how pretty you are, they're going to kill me. Do you see much noble and admirable in Abram right here? There's a lot to condemn. He goes down and Sarai does this and Pharaoh, sure enough, he sees the new girl come in and he's like, that's a pretty girl. I think, oh, your sister, great. Well, let's, uh, I, I think I'd like to date her. And of course, I'm being polite here. He essentially takes her into his harem And all of a sudden, the next day, I don't think, I don't think the Lord allowed him, uh, 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 Pharaoh to actually touch Sarai. Because as soon as he had taken her into his household, he is struck with plagues, sores and boils. And he wakes up and he knows, he, you know, smart guy, he, he makes the connection. Wait a second. And he goes back to Abram and says, why'd you lie to me? Abram's like, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> and Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh do? Abram has been a coward. He lied. He has left his wife exposed to um, sin and wrongness. And God, because of his covenant, a promise, puts a plague on Pharaoh. And Abram leaves Egypt with land, with cattle, uh, livestock, uh, um, uh, slaves. Pharaoh says, I, I think I want to enrich you. And Abram leaves prospering. Let's see if he learns his lesson. A few chapters later, he goes to Abimelech of the Philistines. Does the same thing. Men, we can, we, we can be kind of dull sometimes. Same thing. Hey, honey, remember that thing in Egypt? I know that was wrong of me, but I'm kind of afraid of this Abimelech guy. Let's just try that one again. Sarah's like, oh. <laughs> Household of Abimelech, he wakes up terrorized by a dream where the Lord visits Abimelech and says, you touch that woman and I will kill you. Holy cow. That dream didn't come to Abram in his sin. It came to Abimelech in his innocence. And God said in the dream, I know you're actually innocent in the integrity of your heart, but I'm telling you, you touch her and I'll kill you. My hand is on that man. So Abimelech is like, here, take sheep and camels and goats and cattle Here's a thousand pieces of silver. Here's more slaves. And here's your wife back. Why did you do that? The blessing, this is challenging to our law-based thinking. The blessing that came to Abram that launched him into his prosperity came from God in spite of him, not because of him. His son Isaac 
Like father, like son, Genesis 26. There's another Abimelech later down the line. Isaac has Rebekah. He does the same thing. There's actually a generational sin happening here. And he goes and he says, you know, uh, pretend you're my wife. And Abimelech's looking out the window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah, you know, kind of smooching on each other. And he goes, why did you tell me that was your sister? I see you flirting with her. That's not your sister. And he sends him away, enriched with livestock. It actually says, listen, after Isaac's sin, the very next verse says, and Isaac sowed in that land where he had sinned against Abimelech, and in that same year of his sin, he, he reaped a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and he became rich and he gained more and more. The moment the sin is finished, the promise is still active and we see the blessing of God pouring out upon the family of faith. Now this is challenging because to go into a word like this can sound like I am justifying sinful or carnal behaviors. I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm asking, how does God define righteousness? Jacob, the swindler and the deceiver, he tricked his brother Esau, and yet he, he inherited the blessing of Abram and Isaac. He tricks Laban and he still prospers. Israel is now in this covenant after the years in Egypt. We see in Exodus 14 to 17, God has visited the nation of Egypt and he's enacting his promise to Abram, right? I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. There's no curse on Abram. There's just a curse on those who dare to touch the Lord's anointed. And so Egypt and the gods of Egypt are now in their penalty phase. As God comes to judge the land that dared to touch the one that said yes to him and laid down and rested and entered into a covenant. And so the gods of Egypt are judged. It's, it's a horrendous, magnificent, glorious display of the supremacy of Yahweh. The people are delivered. And what's happening? I want you to hear this. They're still under Abram's covenant. They aren't to Sinai yet. So they complain at the Red Sea. What does God do? He parts the sea. God brings manna and he gives instructions with the manna. Gather one omer for six days. On the sixth day, gather two omers so that you have enough on the Sabbath to not work on the Sabbath. And, and, and he wants them to uh, not work on the seventh day and, and so they're supposed to rest because they're still in Abram's covenant. And so he's given these simple instructions. The people gather extra manna. They, they're, they're, they still aren't in faith mode, Right? They still aren't believing yet that God is good. And so they're, they're nervous. They're like, we're in the wilderness and we're hungry. Here's some food. I better gather extra for the next day. God said, don't. I'm going to give it every day. Trust me. I'm going to give it every day. Trust me. People are nervous. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to gather two or three days. If they did, it rotted or it evaporated. But when they tried, he just moves on. There's no penalty when they search for more on the Sabbath, there's no penalty. When they complain of hunger, he brings quail. 
the people complain of thirst and God provides water from the rock. It's amazing. There's all of our stuff and our issues that we see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then in the nation of Israel. You know, we all read those passages and we're like, why didn't they just believe God? And then we get into our moment, right? And we're like, oh yeah, I am an Israelite. So if you start to see now, there's, an, there's two issues that start to happen in the wilderness. You can read about it in Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. Don't have time to go into it now. But over the course of these things, they're complaining and yet God meets them. They're even disobedient to some of his instruction, but there's not a penalty. He's taking care of them. He's taking care of them. He's demonstrating his goodness. He has miraculously liberated them from the most powerful nation in history up to that point. There are signs and wonders in abundance. Everything is telling them this is a good God. We can trust him. We're in covenant with him from our father Abraham. And even in the midst of our failures, he's still good to us. But two issues start to happen in the wilderness, and the wilderness does this to us. Number one, that kind of complaining weakness becomes more than just grumbling. It becomes an accusation against God. They don't just complain in their weakness, God, I'm hungry, would you do something about this? You can see it starts to shift, and they start to say things like, well, is God with us or not? And if he's with us, he brought us out here to kill us. You have to see how the complaining spirit and root of bitterness that gets in, it ends up defiling so much. And a complaining spirit, David had a complaining spirit in the Psalms. He complained all the time. But he always was rooted in the goodness of God. Their complaining did not ground them in the goodness of God. It caused them to doubt God's goodness altogether. And to accuse him of actually wanting to harm them. Can you imagine seeing the most powerful nation judged? Ten plagues, firstborn die, Red Sea parts, quail coming, manna bread falling from heaven. And, and that thing inside says, you brought us out here to kill us. That's one major issue. The second is they just flat out had a stubborn unwillingness to believe. They simply would not rely on the goodness of God, His power and His provision, and stay in that place. Even in the midst of the grind, even in the midst of the challenges, I believe. We're children of Abraham, and we will continue to believe. So what happens? Now they come to Sinai. Everything I said was pre-Sinai. All those failures, all those mistakes... They're in a covenant with Abraham with no curse. It's not a performance covenant. It's a promise covenant. It's a grace covenant. And as the people of Abraham, they're living in the favor and the blessing of that in the midst of their failure. Now they come to Sinai. And they get ten commandments or laws. A new covenant is ratified. And the terms of the covenant are God's laws. Now I don't have time to go into all of this. You can look in Deuteronomy 5, verses 2 and 3. 
And you see, this is an injection into the storyline. It's actually not changing the covenant with Abraham. That covenant was ratified the moment the God passed through the, the divided animals. And the blood marked the ratification of that covenant. The covenant with Moses is not modifying the covenant with Abraham. It is being added to it in a parallel track. So if we could put this on a timeline, you would have to see that the covenant of performance in the garden is running all the way through. The covenant with Abraham comes along and for those that are of Abraham's seed, they get a different way to relate to God than the garden covenant. And then at some point when they basically say over and over again, we aren't going to do it this way. We don't trust you the way our father trusted you. We don't like you the way our father, we don't think you like us. Then God brings them to a mountain and he says, okay, I'm going to add another covenant. And it's not changing the rules of Abraham's covenant. It is an entirely, you can read in Galatians 3. I don't have time to look. I said we would, but we don't have time. It says the covenant with Moses was added. Not written into Abraham's covenant, but added parallel to it. Moses, even at the time, he says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Sinai. It's not the covenant he made with our fathers. He's making this covenant with us. It's as if the Lord is recognizing that a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, complaining spirit will always refuse to believe because it is unwilling to believe. So God brings them to Sinai as if to say, okay, they aren't going to respond to my leadership with trust and hope and gratitude in spite of all my kindness and power for their good. They don't believe that I am good regardless of what they see. And that's the essence of faith. So God says, I'm going to codify a different mechanism of relationship. And in this one, only raw, measurable performance is going to be the determining factor. It's purely cause and effect. If they perform, I perform. If they don't, I punish. Period. And maybe by this, when they voluntarily say, we don't actually want the unrestricted, unlimited blessings that come by faith, you can go back and read Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you're going to see the people essentially saying this sort of thing. We don't want Moses, you go up the mountain. We don't want to relate to God. You go relate to God. And Moses has them stand on two mountains. Deuteronomy 28. And they shout to one another. They shout to one another, here's all the blessings that come with obedience. And all the people said amen. And here's all the terrible, you read Deuteronomy 28, it'll peel your, uh, your skull back. It's like, here's all the terrible things that will happen for your disobedience. And all the people said, 
this sounds like a good deal to us. Because we have proven so well our ability to obey. We've really got a lock on this. No, see, part of the challenge of these two systems, part of the challenge is this. We actually prefer rules to relationship. We actually prefer it because relationship has a lot of give and take and vagaries in it, if you will. Okay, but just what do you want from me? Sometimes, you know, husbands, maybe you can relate. It's like, honey, sweetie, what is it that you want? Because I'm not real clear right now. Oh, you guys. You all are all saying amen inside. Sweetie, what, what, you just said that to me, but I'm not sure I understand what you mean. But if you can just give me something to do, I'll do it. Just, just lay out, I, need, I want this done, I want this done, I mean this. Okay, boom, boom, boom. Got it, I'll do it. But to actually be in a relationship that requires some sensitivity and some understanding and some trust... And, and, and to always know they've got your back and you've got theirs and you're fighting for one another, rules supply certainty so much better than those challenges sometimes do. And so Israel comes to the mountain and they, God is essentially saying, you will not trust that I'm good the way your father Abraham good, so here's some rules. And I'm going to make it real clear. Perform. You perform, I'll perform. You don't perform, I'll punish. And all the people said, ha, we got this. And now immediately following, what happens? Golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain. The ink's not dry on the new performance system. And the golden calf happens. And what does God say? Leave me alone that I could destroy them. Now, three weeks earlier, they're breaking, they're, they're, they're breaking the, the instructions related to manna. And God's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, more manna's coming. It's okay. Because that was a different covenant. The moment the covenant of law is made official and ratified, now every mistake comes with judgment. The people complain about being hungry, and God gives quail again, except they die. He gives them quail, and a plague is unleashed, and they die. Now a man is gathering sticks on the Sabbath. He's just gathering a few sticks on the Sabbath. They come to Moses. Moses inquires of the Lord. God says, kill him. What? And see, if you don't have this big picture perspective, you think God is schizophrenic. This is so much of the accusation that comes against God in the Old Testament. Well, wait, I thought God was kind and compassionate and slow to anger and all those things. But now I see him almost acting impetuous. No, this is why you have to understand what covenant are you under. 
What are the terms of that covenant? The terms for Abram was, it said in Genesis 15, that when he went to sleep and God renewed all these promises, it says, and Abram believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. For Moses and the people, it was, you do, you fulfill, you obey, and it will be counted as righteousness. This is not a different God, it's a different covenant. Same God, different covenant. Until Sinai, they were living under Abraham. After Sinai, they were living under Moses. We see, an understand, we understand those divine fickleness passages now. Where it's like, we see that side of God where he says, I'm jealous. And I wish I hadn't ever made my promises to you. I want to start over with Moses or I want to do these other things. And it's like, well, God, which one? Within that covenant of performance, that was the covenant. The, 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 the law of Moses is what provided for divorce. So when it talks about God divorcing this people, it's out of the context of the law because the law provided for that. God would never divorce Abraham. He said that. This covenant shall endure forever. And in fact, I don't have time to go into it all, but any time they like bump up against massive periods of judgment for their apostasy and their falling away, and the challenge of judgment is right before them, what leaders appeal to, what Moses would appeal to, what David would appeal to, what others would appeal to is not, hey God, but we're really trying hard to obey. They would say, God, remember your covenant with Abraham. See, we're messing up royally in this other covenant. We can't actually do it. God says, I know. I know. I gave it to you so that you could understand the only way is through faith. Because faith is the mechanism that releases the full measure of God's heart in grace and mercy. The law contained types and shadows of that. But the promise to Abraham is actually fulfilled in Christ. So Christ doesn't abolish the law. He takes all of that and he says, you can't do any of this and you never could. So after all of this time, history bears witness. The covenant of performance will always fail because there is none righteous, no, not one. Even Adam and Eve in the garden in sinless perfect conditions. One rule, two people, still bombs out. How much more when the full measure of God's righteous standard is brought to bear. And so the people labor under that through history for thousands of years. Until the prophesied one comes who says, now I'm going to show you what righteousness really means. And fidelity to God and obedience. You can't do it, but I can. He hangs on a tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Under the law, he is born as, uh, to a woman under the law, dies according to the law, and rises as a new man. He rises in resurrection power. The, 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 the marriage of the human spirit to the law is brought to death in the death of that spouse. 
He is our beloved bridegroom. And when he rises again and says, it's actually really important for me to go to the Father so that I can give you my spirit, it's because he's going to put in you the promise of the eternal covenant that operates relentlessly out of the goodness of God, relentlessly out of the faithfulness of God, relentlessly out of the promise of God for your good, for your good, for your good, over and over and over, and now you become married to the resurrected Christ. And it's not, it's not a, a, a small thing. Paul says in Ephesians, When a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm really talking to you about Jesus and the church. I'm really talking about you getting delivered from a performance mentality. And you thinking like a human doing rather than a human being. And you become something in Christ. And your identity gets shaped and established in mercy and love. And you realize that what you can't do, He has done. And your life is not about the doing, it's about what He's done. And you receive that by faith. And all of the promises of God become yes and amen in Christ. And we get grafted into that promise to Abraham. Just lay down and rest, son. Just lay down and rest, daughter. I'm going to pass through. The blood is on me, and my promise for you is good. It will never fade. I never, I am the Lord your God. I change not. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you start to believe it? Well, I'm struggling, and so uh, I, I just failed. I just sinned. And I got to get on, a, I got to, you know, I got to get back in the saddle and get on this horse and try harder. No. Lay down and rest. Let the blood wash you and your mind be renewed until you get up and re-enter the journey of life, not out of performance, but out of the promise. So the moment you fail, the moment the enemy comes in, the moment condemnation knocks on your door, you look in the mirror and say, right in the midst of my shame, my weakness, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And you can say that by faith in the new covenant. This is why he said, I actually have fault we're just going to stand and pray in a minute. He said, this is why I, I, I find fault with the old covenant. How could he find fault? Because it involved you and I in a covenant with God where we are guaranteed to prove unfaithful. Let me say that again. The Lord found fault even with the covenant He established with Moses because it involved you and I in a relational structure that would guarantee our unfaithfulness. And it would require the blood sacrifice of His own Son to fix it. For God to initiate the covenant at Sinai means 
you're going to be found unfaithful and it's going to cost him everything. And yet, when Jesus comes along, there's no scorekeeping for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He's like, we're going to deal with this performance mentality once and for all. Where's Jerusalem? You know, he's up north of Galilee. He's, he, he, he's accomplished his mission. His people know who he is. He says, where's Jerusalem? Because I'm going to hang on the curse of the law until the law is broken over their hearts and minds and my people can walk in the liberty for which they are designed. And see, when you start to do this, this is why there is zero concern about going deep into grace. When you are living out of the covenant of righteousness by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is now your inheritance. And did anyone notice that He's not just called any spirit, He's called the Holy Spirit. There is no fear in God's heart for what His Holy Spirit can produce inside you. There's no shrinking back and he's like, well, I'm not sure if we can pull this off. He's saying, this is the only way we can pull it off. Because they've shown over and over again, they're going to blow it. So we're going to get inside them. We're going to write our law on their hearts and in their minds. And they're going to start to believe. They're going to start to believe. Inch by inch. Century by century. And the revelation is coming and the restoration of all things this is the only way forward. You can never do the law enough. Je Je Paul, James, he who commits himself to the law must complete all of it because if he fails in any one part, he fails in the whole. It was a system designed to produce failure in everybody so that you would know you must be in relationship to God, not just follow a rule. And that's why when we started... In Romans 4, it says, this is why it depends on faith. We knew the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe. That's why it has to depend on faith. Because the law is designed with zero tolerance and everyone fails. So if Abraham is going to receive the promise of God, that nations and generations and kings would come from him, then it cannot be based on their performance. It has to be based on them entering into faith just like he did. And then God says, I actually have a whole lot more room to bless you this way. I have a whole lot more room to change you. I'll always be faithful, but you set up a covenant of performance and you actually give me a reason not to be faithful. But you just let me do this and you say, yes, I believe, thank you very much. In my sin and my failure, in my weakness and my shame, you are still for me, not against me. Bring on the blessing and the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The Holy Spirit is at work within. The grace of God abounds in righteousness. And over time, you become more righteous by accident than you ever could on purpose. Let's stand. Thanks for being patient with me. I had to really pack a lot in there. I'm just asking that there's a, there really is, uh, I believe a spirit of revelation is here. To see the big picture. And I want to ask you, if, 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 if something was stirring in your heart, if you felt that wooing of the Holy Spirit, hey, uh, re-rest. Re 
We don't want to be bifurcated people. <laughs> I love that. No, 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 no. We want that single-minded. I don't want a little bit of law and a lot of grace. Paul Cain prophesied years ago, to a people without mixture, I will give my spirit without measure. And I don't think that's the mixture of sin. It's the mixture of unbelief. It's mixing law with grace. The moment we enter in, in, into, uh, uh, depart the one and enter into the other, we have put limits on his spirit within us because we're playing out of a different rule book. So if the Lord's speaking to you, if this is one of those moments, okay, I get it. I, get, I really get it. But I don't want this to slip away. I just want to encourage you to just kind of put your hands out. Be in the posture of restful receiving. Even now, don't be thinking, oh man, I hope I wrote down all my notes and I got to memorize them. No, this is a spirit transaction. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you, do something in our hearts and minds. Do something, God, that goes beyond the knowledge of the moment, the memory of the moment, or our ability to uh, make this happen. God, we want to right now abide in you. Holy Spirit, we give you full permission that the seed would fall on good soil, that you would water and care for it. God, we aren't going to go through the, the self-flagellation of repenting, of unbelief. We're just going to say right here in simple confidence, God, I believe. We choose to believe. We choose to believe. We choose to rest. We choose to receive. It's not what you want to give us because we've earned it. It's what you give us because He did it. And so God, I'm asking for a breaking of shackles and chains. A deliverance, a great deliverance out of the minds, the slavish mindset how the law produces that orphan spirit within us where we're always one step removed from being part of the family of God. We become that son that walked away and if I could just return as a slave. No, God, I'm asking for the rings and the robes. The extravagant heart, your goodness, God, let it permeate and deliver and transform us and let us not leave here the same. And God, when it starts to leak away, Holy Spirit, would you just come in and retend this, renew this, invite us back to faith.